Section 3 of G. K. Chesterton in America A Catholic Review of the Week This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Greg Giordano G. K. Chesterton in America a Catholic Review of the Week by G. K. Chesterton The Return of Pageantry Though still in an eclipse of economic slavery and desolate irreligion, there is some real sign that the English-speaking people may again become a gay and poetical race, as they were in the Middle Ages. I have always thought that the English coronation service might not unworthily be called the last and greatest of the pageants, but we do not, unfortunately, have coronation services frequently enough to enliven our dull lives. It is in other directions that we must look for changes, and it so happens that certain celebrations have really shown the culmination of a change in the English people, a change which is widespread, profound, and, I think, historic. The outbreak of those earnest and archaeological fancy dress balls of recent years all over England, and I hear all over America as well, was largely spontaneous and was extremely astonishing. For nearly two hundred years, the whole trend of the English had been in the direction of despising symbolic sentiments and rococo festivals, and telling everybody to stick to mutton-chop whiskers and to mutton-chops. We looked lovingly on the shapes of our own policemen, merely because they were ugly, and we regarded the mildest gendarme at a foreign railway station as a sabred brigand. This view was not only general, but genuine, deep, native, and sincere. The merchants and farmers who felt it were far more English than the young England dandies or the mountebanks who tried to interfere with it. Yet it is being abandoned now not by dandies or mountebanks, but seemingly by the genuine British public, and its adoption and its abandonment are equally subtle enigmas of history. Why did we ever have this shyness about dressing up, and why are we losing it? I have a notion of my own, which I fear brings in controversial issues, as most real things will, and I think it worth while to outline it. I can outline it in one sentence. The night is still about us, but Puritanism has died in the night. The Puritans, in their hours of pride, seem actually to claim that the English peoples, in whatever land, are fundamentally Puritan, were made by the Puritan spirit. They put Cromwell in the place of Alfred. They put him not merely at the head of English patriotism, but at the beginning of English history. They make old England a sort of Puritan colony, like New England. All this, of course, is a ludicrous delusion. The first facts, or names, that jump to the mind will remind anyone that England had a splendid national literature and a very unmistakable type of national life before the hat of a single Puritan had been seen and hooted in England. Chaucer is even more English than Bunyan. Shakespeare certainly more English than Milton. The Tabard and the Mermaid, 
Lady Godiva and St. George, Robin Goodfellow and Robin Hood, belong to a national tradition that has not even been touched by Puritanism, yet which is quite different from the tradition of Spain, of Scotland, or of France. Chaucer's Franklin, whose beard was white as a daisy, and whose house it snowed meat and drink, was as certainly an Englishman as he most certainly was not a Puritan. Puritanism was something put into the English people after they had grown to their full national stature. Some hated it as an alien poison. Some praised it as a violent medicine. But nobody pretended that it was the natural bread and ale that had hitherto built up the countrymen of Colette and Ben Jonson. It might indeed be maintained that in all the three cases of nations thus raided by Puritanism, the Scotch, the English, and the Dutch, this religion has been rather a sort of spell or possession than a true change of personality. It might be suggested that in each case a merrier and more medieval nation went alive into the land of bondage and is now coming alive out of it. Thus the Scotch romance and witchery which Scott and Stevenson have brought to life is only the return of a spirit most marked in the old Scottish ballads and chronicles, in the tales of Tinlane in the forest, and Thomas the Rhymer among the fairies, and in that almost Arthurian romance of the roving court of Robert Bruce, which left, like a gypsy blood for generations, a tradition of wandering Scotch kings. Even in Scotland, I believe, Calvinism has only been an episode. The Scotch are taking off their blacks and appearing again in the purple of their ancient poetry. We may yet hear the twang of the last precentor before we really hear the lay of the last minstrel. Even in the third case of Holland, of which I know far less, something of the same kind could be suggested. Before the coming of the Puritan, the people of the flat country had already shown that talent for a certain detail and domesticity in art which fills so many galleries with their quaint interiors and their convincing still life. It might well be maintained that the same note of half-religious realism, of an almost mystical silence and solidity, is being sounded in much of the new literature of the Netherlands. Nothing could be more like the almost conventional quietude and neatness of the pre-Reformation art among the Flemings, and nothing certainly could be more unlike the somewhat vulgar, yet really demonic energy, the curious mixture of bourgeois smugness, and visionary anarchy that marked the mighty days of the Puritan. Nothing could be further from the new tone in Dutch literature than the sensational art and literature of the Protestant extremists. As you may see it in the old Bibles or illustrations of Bunyan, an atmosphere at once monstrous and prosaic, mixed of a mild view of this world and a mad view of the other, the earth an endless London suburb like Clapham, and the sky a permanent apocalypse. It left on the mind a confused sense that angels had whiskers and saints had top hats, and certainly the dull energy in it was at the opposite extreme from the spirit of a small room, as described by the Belgian poet, Verheren, were painted by Mending. But the case of England at least admits of no mistake. Not only did England produce a most anti-Puritan literature before the Puritans existed, but it went on, under the Puritans, 
and in spite of the Puritans, producing literature quite anti-Puritan. There is as little that is Puritan about Fielding and Dickens as there is about Chaucer and Shakespeare. Dickens quite obviously existed to champion everything that the Puritans existed to destroy. When Mr. Scrooge is converted to Christmas, Cromwell or Ireton would have thought that Scrooge was relapsing and not repenting. When Scrooge and his clerk sit down to a bowl of smoking bishop, the Puritan would have been equally disgusted with the spirit and with the name. Nevertheless, the Ironside element, though alien to England, was to a certain extent mixed with it, and I myself believe that it is to this partial mingling of a foreign and a native idea that we owe the curious attitude of the English peoples, until lately, towards processions, religious and secular, pomps and historical pageants, nothing else will explain this phenomenon so well. The Calvinist color, mixing with each separate national color, made in each case a different blend or tint. The Scotch had been restless, rebellious, fond of mystery, valiant, and sometimes cruel. The combination of Calvinism with this produced a sort of somber romanticism, which one can feel very strongly in Burns, and in the blacker tales of Stevenson. The Dutch, I imagine, were domestic and devout. The combination of Calvinism with this produced a slight dullness and a rage for keeping things clean. The English certainly were lusty, casual, and full of broad fun. The combination of Calvinism with this produced a curious kind of bourgeois embarrassment, part humor, part respectability, and part good sense. Since the Englishman was not to wear crimson clothes carelessly, the next most English thing was to wear black clothes casually and unobtrusively. Where the Catholic Englishman had been modest enough to make a fool of himself, the Protestant Englishman had only that lower sort of modesty that will not make a show of itself. He objected to making a pageant, because it is, literally speaking, making a scene. It is said that the Frenchman shrugs his shoulders, but the Victorian Englishman was born with his shoulders shrugged. His whole attitude until lately has been, what's the good of making a fuss? It is a sensible and pleasant temper. It is the remains of the real Englishman who gave its patient Pickwickian cheerfulness to the Canterbury pilgrimage. But it will be gained and not lost if this minor humility of drab and gray can give place to that higher and more humble humility which can forget itself in flowers and fireworks and in the colors of the carnival. G. K. Chesterton End of Section 3 Read by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.